broadcasting from Chico, California. This is the Barbless Fly Fishing Podcast, where we discuss NorCal fly fishing, guiding, fishery science and management, conservation, and more. Know better, fish better. Here's your hosts, Chad Alderson and Nick Hanna. This episode of the Barbless Fly Fishing Podcast is brought to you by California Trout. Working throughout the state to ensure we have resilient wild fish thriving in healthy waters for a better California. Support Caltrout's innovative science-based work by becoming a member or donating today at caltrout.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a, a remote podcast from the Barbless Fly Fishing Podcast. Um, we're, we're all called in, so we apologize in advance if the sound is a little off, but um, we're, we're still in quarantine stage, so... Um, we got a fun episode today. We got uh, Mike and Tyler from Fish Bio. How you guys doing? Oh, hanging in there. Yeah, we're doing well. Isolating, isolating and working rather than fishing, but can't complain. Yeah, and, and as we speak, there's talks about California shutting down the recreational fishing in, in some places. Uh, I have a feeling it might be in the entire state, but we'll see what we'll see what happens. Yeah, that's. Um... Oh no. That's going to happen tomorrow. Today is the ninth, right? Is today the ninth? No, today's the eighth. Eight. So yeah. a, a, today's April eighth. Um, two. It's like two two fifteen p.m. I just want to call out the dates because this weird ass timeline we're on this alternate universe. Um, yeah. So there tomorrow, I guess the uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife, I believe, is going to make a determination with a special, I don't know, Jedi Council meeting of some sort and let everybody, let us peasants know if we can fish or not. That's, really that's that's my understanding and i've been told that it's going to be on a county by county basis but this will all come to pass oh, okay. by the time anybody listens to this so we'll we'll have to do another update it's got to it's going to be hard though to the police just that certain areas you know and then like you shut things down and leave some stuff open and everybody flocks to those areas that are open you know you're just like adding to the, adding to the problem and they're they're giving us time right now to call it not call in but email the fishing game and and so that the the board gets to see everybody's comments prior to the meeting happening tomorrow but from what i've heard these these guys have already made their decision right it's just kind of due diligence just allowing the public to, to chime in if they want but um from what i've understand and heard through the grapevine that they've already made a decision to to shut things down um entirely so uh, i don't know we'll see I was talking to a guide friend of mine yesterday who you know, has been fishing solo just to stay up with, with current events and what's happening on the river. And he was telling me that apparently they already closed a bunch of boat ramps up in the Sacramento. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there still are guides out with clients, which, you know, I, I feel for the people who rely on that as their only source of income. But totally, um, that it shouldn't be happening right now. Um, and yeah, you know, if, if some people don't follow the suggestions, you have to make the suggestion, the rule and it's going right. to work for everybody. So, right. Well said. Yeah, there is, you know, for those people that they're kind of in that situation where they still need to guide, um, there are several different government relief options, both federal and state that we covered, um, in a, in a, a recording today, which I believe is going to be episode 141. And um, we'll air on uh, the the ninth, which is tomorrow on Thursday morning. So by the time you get this one, one forty one will have already been published, and you can find that in our archives. Okay, 
So without further what's, what's ado, that, what's that one, Chad? Uh, well, I talked to a um, a tax attorney that's actually a listener out of Ohio, and um, he he kind of walked us through what the options are for for folks that yeah. have that are you know independent contractors, i.e., guides, lodge owners, retail retail shop owners, and and then you know even even people that own homes and things like that, what, what you can do. Right. I've, I've been look, trying to follow up on that stuff as it's changed so rapidly, but it, apparently a lot of the banks aren't even accepting applications anymore because they've been flooded by so many already. They're, and it um, sounds like sounds like they're going to come out with some more money to offer. Yeah, the, the, um, the SBA, it's an SBA loan. I think that's how I say it, SBA. Um, mm-hmm. That loan, though, is it's a federal loan, but it goes – it's brokered through your local bank. So right. the banks are, you're correct, Nick, and that they're not taking applications um, for non-members. If you're still a member of your, of the bank, they, they, they're obligated to, to take your app. So that's the only caveat that I would say to that. Gotcha. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. Oh uh, yeah. This yeah, is new info for me. Well, the main reason for the podcast today is uh, we, um, well, uh, Fish Bio did a study on uh, Big Chico Creek, one of our local streams that has special regulations. And um, Michael and Tyler are here to, to talk about it and talk about what they found. And I, it's kind of, yeah. I'm kind of interested. I, I was invited to go there that day and do some fish counting with them. And I, I got my wetsuit on and got to dive into a cold creek and swim with the fishies and it, it was a it was a fun experience i had a great time doing it i had uh, um a lot of doubt in the process of the fish counting that was going on so i'm glad we're doing this because uh, <laughs> I, I want mike to clarify you know what why we counted some of the holes twice when i was like hey there, i saw every fish in there there was 10 fish i saw them all they're in that hole they're, they're, <laughs> nope we got to do it again what what <laughs> So, yeah, without further ado, Mike, go ahead and um, introduce yeah. yourself. And Well, first of all, yeah, thanks for having us on again. And, yeah, thanks for your, your help last summer. I'm hoping we can count on you again, um, assuming we can we can pull this off um, this year this year as well. Um, but, yeah, to, about the Big Chico Creek surveys, it's just to, to backtrack a little bit and provide a little bit of background. Um Back in, I believe it was 2013, um, when, well, shortly after Fish Bio opened an office up here in Chico, um, we had this conversation that, you know, a lot of our work and, you know, our, our necessary work and our bread and butter kind of depends on monitoring in, in river systems that is, is either proactive or, or mandatory, but it usually happens in river systems that are already very heavily modified or very impacted. And very little monitoring happens in, in systems that are, you know, nearly natural or, or fairly fairly pristine. Um, and there aren't, you know, there aren't a great many, especially not in the Central Valley. And we were considering trying to, to do a, a local study. Know, something to get involved with the local community and, and to learn something, contribute something about the creek that many of us cross every day going to and, and from work. And it also goes back to the you know rainbow trout, steelhead dimorphism or dichotomy that, that we did an episode on um, a few months ago or, or at some point last year. Um, 
where Big Pico Creek has rainbow trout. Those rainbow trout could potentially be steelhead, um, which are um, federally protected, federally and state protected. Or even if they're resident rainbow trout, they could be the parents of future steelhead. So we decided to to start monitoring um, Big Chico Creek within the boundaries of the Big Chico Creek Ecological Reserve, just a few miles outside of Chico. And this is not a funded, you know, project for us. This is this is kind of our our summer relief, if you will. That's what we're looking for. Um, looking forward to every summer an opportunity to to get out and and spend some time on and in our local creek. And we, you know, rotate staff in and out. Usually, we have we have one of our guys out there, kind of guiding, leading the way, or, or running the show, if you will. Um, but rely heavily on volunteers and, and support, um, especially from the Big Chico Creek Ecological Reserve. Um, and then we fill the remaining slots with volunteers such as yourself, Nick, or when we have student interns over the summer, you know, who we um, punish by having to mount scales and sit behind a microscope um, for a few months. This is kind of kind of the carrot. It's like, oh, yeah, so if it works out well, we, we do have some field work coming up. You, you do get to go swim with the fish. And we have that and a couple other community volunteers that typically help us out. And it's a great system to do that um, for for a number of reasons. Um, for one, it's it's fairly small. So the survey that we do are they're visual surveys, so observational surveys. We don't we don't touch fish, we don't catch fish, we don't remove fish, we don't handle them. Um, so it's it's something that's very non-invasive, which is all, always desirable, especially with with sensitive species. Um, and yeah, it's a very small creek with, you know, two, three people in the water swimming, snorkeling. Um, you can conceivably count just about all the fish that are in, in a given habitat unit. So it's based on the size of the creek, the visibility that we have in the water. Water is always very clear, um, especially in late summer. And the the number, the fish densities that, that we have come to expect are very conducive to to this visual survey. So we've done it four times now, and yeah, hope to to keep it going every summer into the future. So what you mentioned, uh, um, you mentioned that it's the the stream is is conducive to the counting. What like what would be an example of of, of a local stream that that wouldn't be conducive to this type of system? Well. Um, it could be it could not it could be not conducive because of the size of the system. So if you you know if you think of the high flow section of the feather, for example, that has just has this huge cross section that you just you can't conceivably line up thirty people across the width of that river and and count every fish that you snorkel over. Um, uh, it also has great visibility. You know, these these summer Sierra and Foothill streams always run crystal clear um, during during July, August, September when we do those surveys, and that's that's kind of crucial because in theory you're supposed to be able to at least have a chance at seeing every fish within a given habitat, so within a given run or a given pool or a given ripple. And you know, if you just to to highlight that one, maybe if you, if you think of the Pit River, you know, there's tons and tons and tons of fish in there, but you can only see two feet in front of you. So, again, if it's more than two feet deep, you can't conceivably 
count every fish uh, that you see in a habitat unit. Or another option is, you know, even though the creek is small and, and clear, there could just be too many fish. Um, we have conducted the same same methodology, the same survey on Deer Creek a few years ago. I believe it was in 2014. And what we found there is that the, the methodology that we were using, that snorkel methodology, um, is the numbers in Deer Creek definitely kind of push, push the limits of that methodology just because if you have a larger number of fish, you know, say 20 plus in a given habitat unit, it just, they move fast. They, they scurry about. It's very, very difficult to, to get consistent counts and to be, to have confidence in the counts um, that you are performing. You know, it works really well if you have one, two, five, ten fish um, that you're counting and you can count those accurately. But once those numbers get too high, um, the, the counts or the confidence about those counts um, just kind of falls apart. It, it still produces a population estimate, but the, mm -hmm. the intervals of your, your confidence are just, they're very, very broad. So yes, Deer Creek would be an example where, you know, we have a very comparable stream to Big Chico Creek. It's a little bit bigger. Um, the trout density is just that much higher that, yeah, you're really pushing the boundaries of of what that methodology can do reliably. What's it called again? What's the methodology that you guys use? Um, it's it's a bounded count method, so method of bounded counts, and and that's I think what you were touching on earlier um, when we asked you last summer after you had completed snorkeling your unit to get back in and do it again, and then do it again, and then do it again. <laughs> um, and so a, a subset of the units that we snorkel. Um, we randomly select for multiple counts or those bounded counts. And um, the way that works is you use snorkel or particular unit four times in a row with a little bit of, of a rest period in between. And the assumption is that the number of fish in that unit doesn't change between those snorkel counts. Um, but the number of fish that you, you actually see, um, that that can vary. And the way that that method works, it takes the the highest of those four counts and the second highest of those four counts and adds the difference to the highest count. So say on you know, your highest count is 13, your second highest is 11, your actual estimate for the number of fish in that unit will be 15. Because just by the, by the nature of those different, count, different counts, there's a chance that, that you are missing fish. Right. And just to so describe this from my point of view, when I went down there, just to, I guess to try to make it a little bit easier for people listening is, you know, when we got down to the creek, um, these guys literally had a map and and it was numbered. So they're using when they say unit, it was an actual area, right? Is that right, Michael? It's like a yeah. it's either a ripple or it's a pool or it's but it's it's usually a, an area where these fish are going to be in, and that that's what sometimes we would be going along the creek we'd get to section 41 and then 42 skip 43 hit 44 and we'd have to count 44 you know multiple times four times um did, did i explain that yeah no that's exactly what it is so this whole survey um is, is preceded by a very detailed habitat mapping effort and you know, mm -hmm. we did that back in 2013 and, and have just 
verified it um, for, for accuracy every summer, every time we go out. Um, but within the, the ecological reserve, we've literally gone through, followed the creek, and classified it all into habitat units. So run, riffle, pool, and cascades. And cascades, you, you can't really snorkel just because you can't see well and it's all you know bubbles and white water. Um, but for all the other habitat categories, so run, riffle, pool, um, we have them all numbered. You know, there's somewhere 200 and change or so habitat units within the reserve. And we systematically go go through and select every depending on depending on the year and the habitat type every you know fourth or fifth run every fourth or fifth pool and the same with riffle um, to to snorkel and the the advantage of that is in systems like river systems where you would expect some type of gradient you're capturing that gradient from you know top to bottom or bottom to top. If you were just to select your samples randomly, there's a chance they all fall into a cluster at the like at the very top of your your survey creek or at the very bottom, and that may not be representative of what you see across the whole stretch of river. So we're using this systematic approach where we where we sample every or according to a, a predetermined interval um, these units, and then again a, a subsample of those um, for each category. Um, we use for the we, we select for the bounded counts to get get a measure of, of a- accuracy and also to you know extrapolate to the the full number that's expected to be there based on those bounded counts. Mm-hmm. Does anybody have a question or want to add? I, I do, but it might be a little early. I just want to know what the results were. <laughs> Dad, like, I wish I wish you would have been down there in a wetsuit watching with me counting some of these fish. That would have been yeah, would have been fun to see. They make a wetsuit that would fit me, but <laughs> oh, you can, you're, you're tough enough in August to go for a swim in the creek. You don't need yeah, a wetsuit. Us Aldersons don't like cold water. Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm the same way. I'm yeah. I'd much rather snorkel in like 80 plus degree water than you know. 65 ish or so. So I, um, yeah, I took I, a wetsuit down there, and, and there was a kid that volunteered that was in a swim trunks and a shirt. And by it wasn't even the end of the day. By the middle of the day, I remember, you know, picking my head up and looking over at him because we were side by side swimming up a, a, a small pool counting these fish and we'd pop up and you know give numbers and whatnot but i remember getting up out of the water and looking at him and his lips were bright blue <laughs> they were so they were so i mean the water it was it was still really cold and you could see yeah. so just to describe like to the listeners you know we would get into these pools and it, you'd drop down and it's underneath the surface and you could see everything you know from one side of the bank to the other it's a really small stream um, and it really clear water so it was i was Going back to kind of what Michael said, um, I, I got upset after I was told to count the hole again one time because I, I know that I know for a fact that I went through that hole and I saw 10 fish and, you know, and I was like, there's no way that there's going to be a different count, you know, but after going through the different um, pool structures and the, the different anatomy of these um, units, it, it started to make more sense as to why, you know, why that was structured the way it was. So. Yeah, and you can't really do science and willy nilly have a process. It's got to you got to stick to it no matter what, right? Um, 
So I, I did look at the numbers compared to like 2018 to 2019, and and can we kind of talk about that because there was some some prizes there, at least for me. Yeah, definitely. Um, so just to, I guess the, the brief summary is we're we're back to abundance levels um, that are very comparable to what we saw prior to the drought in in 2013. Um, so within those, um, what what was it exactly? I'm trying to remember what the um, the length was, um, but. So within the ecological reserve, I think it's four and a half miles. Mm-hmm. Um, within the ecological reserve, I think our estimate was somewhere right around 2,500 um, rainbow trout. In 2019, um, I think 2,576 was the exact estimate. And that is very comparable to the first time we did it in 2013, which was 2,515. Um, and 2014, we, we saw a... a a big dip in density that was kind of the the first year of drought impact i think on the creek and then we we skipped a few years just because the water was so low um, and so warm and in 2018 when we started doing it again um we saw a little bit of a bounce back but it was still you know still quite a bit lower i think the 2018 estimate was somewhere around 18 between 18 and 1900 fish um and then, yeah, in, in 2019, now we're back up to, to pre-drought abundance. And what's really interesting to me on this is, you know, we, for work, conduct similar surveys on, on other rivers in the Central Valley. Um, and we've seen this similar pattern. We saw this big decrease, you know, during the drought in, in abundance and density. And then within one, two years after, and granted, that was, you know, helped by the, the very wet winter in 17, um, that that seemed to make a big difference um, for for these fish and providing suitable conditions for reproduction. Um, but eighteen nineteen, we saw these big bounce backs um, from depressed numbers during the drought to just about pre pre drought abundance levels, which is very encouraging. And it's very encouraging to see this on a on a natural system with a natural hydrograph. Um, you know that doesn't have any cold water storage um, to rely on um, or any, you know, any diversions or any, any type of modified hydrograph. So this is um, a small creek um, example of, of how resilient these populations actually, actually are um, in light of drought challenges and, and low water years. Is it safe to say that like a lot of those fish are one and two years old or no? Um, probably. They're probably, you know, one to, yeah one, two, three years old for the most part. And how um, there were, there were a lot of small fish in there. I mean, that's the majority of what we were counting were little, little tiny fish, you know, every once in a while we'd see one that looked like it was 16, maybe 17 inches, but, um, a lot, a lot of smaller fish in there for sure. It would smaller yeah, being like six to 12 inches or six to 10, six to 10. Okay. Yeah. And so we, the way we break them up, um, we break them up by size category for, for the estimation. So one is, you know, smaller than 150 millimeters, which is, what is that, four, five, six, inch, six inches? Um, yeah, six inches. And then 150 to 300, so six to 12, and then larger than 12 inches or 300 millimeters. Mm-hmm. Um, and the small ones, the, you know, smaller than six inches is, 
I think, where was that? Right around 1,400 or so fish of the 2,500 that we estimated. So, you know, more than half. And then in contrast, um, I think we had six, six, 700 or so um, larger than 12 inches. But even if they're larger than 12 inches, they're not much larger. So um, usually we don't see any, any big fish um, in this creek. And while it is a, you know, it is, open to the public and open to fishing. I think even right now, maybe until tomorrow, we'll see what happens tomorrow. <laughs> um, but yeah, for, for people that go there, you know, there's, it's, it's by no means a, a destination or, or a trophy fishery. It's kind of a, you know, a little local gem um, for people that are willing um, to risk mountain lions and rattlesnakes. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, and don't mind the, the long hike down from the, the gate to the ecological reserve and then the the hike back up, which always seems twice as long. Um, yeah, we're talking yeah, miles, I, not yards. Yes, oh, definitely. <laughs> For a hike, just in case anybody's yeah. thinking about doing it this weekend or whatever. It's about yeah. 30, 30 minutes down and then an hour out. You know, because yeah. it's so it is so steep. That um, sounds, but yeah, that sounds about right. And it's it, you know, like going back, Deer, Deer Creek definitely has bigger and, and more fish in it, and more yeah. worth your time. It's interesting though to hear this study being done and the numbers going back into the um, the drought because as anglers, you know, I was talking to a lot of people and they were all curious, like, what's the, what's this impact? What's the drought and how is it going to impact our fisheries? Are these trout streams going to suffer? Are there or even did the trout survive? And just based on angling um, numbers and pressure, you know, we were, I was getting feedback that, hey, these, these fish survived and, and they're doing just fine. Uh, and this is a, a Deer Creek specifically. Um, so it's just cool to, it was neat to be able to put that wetsuit on and, and get into the water and, and see it firsthand and, and do that with you guys. So um, I had fun doing it and definitely would come back. So, well, if um, I can, if, if I can make a couple pitches real quick, um, one of them, you know, for, for listeners who are interested in what this Creek look like, looks like, and, and want to envision this, um, for one, we, we put out a little video, we put together a little video on this past survey. Well, and even on previous surveys, um, that people can find on the fish bio website and can get to, um, to, yeah, get some eyes on the Creek and, and be, be able to better picture what this looks like. And then, um, secondly, for people that, you know, do want to head out, um, whether it be for, for a hike or for the fishing, the main access is through the Big Chico Creek Ecological Reserve, which I believe public access remains open as of now. Um, but if people go, um, please take a minute and fill out the, the self-registration visitors log, um, that helps the reserve, you know, keep track of people and, and usage and, and make their, make, make, make their case for, for future funding allotments, et cetera, um, that often depends on, on use numbers and visitor numbers. Yeah. Um, so they can, they can act accordingly. And then, yeah, thirdly, if, if there are some people that are really, really interested in, in working, working hard for a day or two, trekking around and snorkeling and crawling up riffles. Um, yeah, we always, we love to accommodate a couple volunteers, um, every summer and yeah people can definitely get in touch if there's if it, if anyone's interested in participating participating this year um assuming it is going to happen so that's all corona dependent at this point but we certainly plan on it 
Yeah, there's some pro- pro- promising numbers coming out of New York now, finally. So hopefully we're hitting the uh, the inflection point. I hope. Um. Anyway, uh, okay. Talk about if you can the the um what what am I trying to say here? The nutrients in 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 that particular creek, you know, in, in relationship to you know food availability things like that that might you know help these these population densities maybe pick up quicker than some other streams and i'm and i'm talking like specifically about um the geological conditions for that particular watershed that maybe make more nutrients than say other watersheds like mcleod's a classic example of a nutrient rich watershed um we've talked, I think you and I and Matt have talked about the relationship between like nutrients and food availability and all that. Can you kind of get into that or, or have you guys, do you have any insights on the geological stuff in that particular watershed? You know, I don't really off the top of my head have any of the, you know, geo geomorphological or, or nutrient or water chemistry, um, numbers or analysis that I could rely on for that. Um, Tyler, do, can you, can you think of anything, um, that you're familiar with or that you may have heard on that? We may have lost Tyler. Oh, yeah. It sounds like it. That's okay. okay. But okay. So in general, can you kind of talk about the relationship between that and, and, and like just food, food source? For folks so, to apply to just any watershed, really? Yeah, no, so gen- generally speaking, you know, the, ultimately what drives productivity is is, is nutrient availability, right? Um, but it's, and, and some systems, uh, some river systems are naturally predisposed to, to a higher productivity just based on their, based on their geology, Um the the streams around here, and, and that's including Big Chico Creek, is actually not very nutrient rich. Um, and I, again, the the contrasting example that you can make here, um, in very simplified terms, if is if you compare compare like Big Chico Creek to say the Pitt River, right? The Pitt River is a nutrient soup, and that is is definitely reflected in the water clarity. Um, a lot of these, you know, Sierra Nevada. Hill Cascade streams um, run pretty low and clear during the summer, in large part because they're fairly nutrient poor. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have nutrient rich waters, oftentimes you see increased algal production, um, lots and lots of diatoms that um, invertebrates feed on, and that you know cascades up to up the trophic chain or up the food chain. Um, and yeah, on Big Chico Creek, for example, you don't you don't have a whole lot of that. Um, but then again, I think Chico state might be a, a much better resource, um, for, for looking up some of these, yeah. um, nutrient analyses for, for local watersheds. Um, but yeah, these creeks, you know, including Big Chico Creek, there's, there's fish in there for sure, but it's not, it's not hugely yeah. productive. And then, we, um, uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Chad. Uh, well, I think Matt was talking about like, the elevation on a gradient of a river, you're more likely to have bigger fish towards the bottom of the system. And I'm talking specifically about trout, like the, the, the further down the system you go gradient wise to a lower elevation, 
to where the temperature is still conducive to that that speed whatever that species is you're targeting let's say trout um there's just more there's more opportunity for nutrients to get into the water because of tribs and things like this therefore there's more bugs also is that is that did i get that right mike there's yeah there's definitely a lot of that going on um as you know as a watershed lengthens out you know you have more and more opportunities for side um side channels and and inputs uh, um as the water gets bigger and bigger as it goes downstream but it's also have to factor in the temperature too because as you go downstream it tends to get warmer and during droughts that's where um i think you know you you could rely on a lot of like colder headwater uh pools to act as refuge during droughts and i think that was something that is in abundance in big chico creek that allowed those fish to kind of snap back okay yeah that makes a lot of sense um, I was wondering about yeah, that you know, and, and how many, how much the fish migrate due to the, you know, because of that warmer water, if they go and, and up, up river, like a steelhead almost would to seek some of that, that cold, colder, uh, the colder trades coming in or deeper holes like that. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And that was something that Michael and I had done. Uh, when was that? We started that last year, Michael, was it over the summer? We were just, uh, snorkeling through, um, um, Bidwell Park just down lower and we were checking the temperatures each day as well watching the temperatures da- the daily water temperatures just um, inch up and up and up but at the same time we're like okay well what is the last temperature what is the warmest temperature that we stop seeing trout down here yeah that was that was last spring that was that was pretty interesting I'd like to I'd like to do that again once temperatures start to warm up because because you see um, well two things you know you, you see these trout down low um, trout potential steelhead and and my assumption is that for the most part the fish that we see down low in the creek um, you know this time of year in May and June um, are actually juveniles that are that are ocean bound so they're you know it's, just about smolting or, and starting to smolt and out migrate. And to do that, they have to migrate through the lower portions of the creek. Um, but you can, you know, if you, if you snorkel within Bidwell Park and then watch these fish, they're happily hanging out and feeding and they're still, you know, they're still growing as a, as a consequence. But there comes a time when, yeah, either seasonally, um, the temperature just gets too hot. And they have to do something, right? They have to either go back up if they're resident fish, or they have to go out to the ocean um, before before that that temperature becomes or, or has negative effects um, to the yeah to the point of of mortality. And I was surprised at what temperatures we actually still saw fish in, in Lower Bidwell Park. Um, it was well into the twenties. Um, Celsius that we that we continue to see fish. What's that in um, English? Then, yeah, no no wetsuit required for that one. <laughs> yeah, no wetsuit required. <laughs> what's twenty Celsius um, in English? Uh, what what's the eighty two is twenty eight, so somewhere mid seventies. Wow. Okay. Yeah, like there's oh, yeah. there's an episode that John McMillan does around the on the the OP podcast where he talks about. The relationship between water temperature and steelhead productivity in terms of bite, and okay. he, he gets into 
in detail for like almost an hour and a half around this this concept and it's a really interesting episode to listen to for anybody no matter what level you're at even if you're a scientist he'll probably you'll probably learn something from him but um the thing that he said is like the ability for a particular you know trout species salmonid species to you know to, to to deal with water temp is really down to the genetic you know predisposition of that that particular strain in a particular watershed because there's just certain watersheds where their life history is they you know they've grown up in this and they're and genetically over you you know many 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 years um they've they've developed the ability to like you know either deal with warm temperature better than others or not so that oh yeah it's pretty southern california steelhead are the prime example of this right yeah yeah, it's a really it's a really great episode. I can't remember the the exact episode number, but he's only got like eleven or twelve out now, so it's it's pretty easy to find just water temperature and steelhead. But um, yeah, well, you guys sorry. start talking about the nutrients of that creek and how um, just prolific maybe the the bug life might be or whatnot. I, I, it's hard for me to, and I think we've talked about this in the past, but to bring up the fact that you know, in the, I think it was the eighties, and maybe you guys um, at Fish Bio know more about this, but. The, the salmon production was, was low on the creek. And so they came, fish and game came to the, um, they agreed that there was too many, uh, northern pike, basically, um, hard headed pike minnows in the, uh, in the system. So they, they poisoned it. They poisoned the entire creek and it killed off all these sculpins. Um, who's the lead guy up at the ecological preserve that, that runs that? Eli. Yeah, right now. No, yeah, not Eli, Eli but the, the the professor that um, oh retired professor Paul Maslin. Paul Maslin. He, yeah, he he was specifically asking me, hey, or, you know, look for look for um, lamprey eels in there when you're snorkeling around, and I did. I was digging mud up. I was digging up debris looking for them. I, I never saw one, that, you know, in there. And it just I always think about you know that poisoning that that happened on that creek and just wiping out everything and ha- having to have to rebound. Um, it, it was, was I accurate in that information? Michael? Oh yeah, very, was... very, very much so. Um, yeah. So that they, they did, um, it, it, well, what's, what's the politically correct term for this these days? Like they chemically renovated the Creek. Yes. The renovation chemically castrated um, the Creek. Mm-hmm. Um, to, yeah, do, to reduce the, the perceived competition by, by native fish species on, on the more desirable salmonids. Um, and yeah, the, it, the native fish community doesn't seem to have completely bounced back from that. So we have, you know, in, in multiple years of surveys now up, up on the ecological reserve. We have yet to see a pike minnow or a hardhead. Um, we very rarely um, see a sucker. Um, we have yet to see any amicetes or, or lam- the lamprey juveniles. Um, but then again, that may be very well be related to the methodology, right? They they live in the sediment. They're stuck in the mud, if you will. Um, yeah. They're they're very very difficult to see when you <laughs> or impossible to see when you're snorkeling. So right, again, right. the methodology is is more geared towards fish or, that are in the water column. Um, but then for lamprey, you know, it, it's been it's been very difficult to to do like or get permission to do more invasive survey methodologies up there, like electrofishing. 
um, where you could actually get your hands on, on lampreys much more yeah, efficiently. Um, but I, so I can't, I can't say whether they're there or not there. Um, it, it certainly seems reasonable to expect that they haven't recolonized to a great extent. Um, in part because lamprey are a little different than salmon, like we're, or, or salmonids in general, um, that have a tendency to go back to their natal streams. Not always, but you know, they have a tendency to. Um, and lamprey are different. Lampreys seem to hone in when when the adult lamprey come back from the ocean. Um, the anadromous Pacific lamprey, in any case, um, they they hone in on pheromones that are released by the juvenile. So whenever they come back, they go somewhere where there's juveniles. So they know that there's that that conditions are suitable where they're going. Um, right. okay. And can I unbox that just for a second? Yeah. Um, all right. So if let's talk about just scent and natal streams for a second. So with with trout, they look they they smell literally like the water chemistry, right? The nutrient makeup of the of that particular watershed, correct? Yes. With lamprey, you're you're saying that the pheromones only from the juveniles is what these lampreys out in the ocean key on. Well, they they generally, you know, they come come back to fresh water and then within the river system, okay, hone in on places where they can they can sense the the pheromones that are released released by the juveniles. Whoa. Um, and as a consequence, if you wipe out all the juveniles, um you really reduce your chances of any adults coming yeah. back to, to recolonize. It's right? like, it's like a homing pigeon without a magnetic pole. Exactly. That's crazy. Um, okay. So do they still, do they smell their streams though? Kind of like trout do, and then they kind of hone in further on their nesting grounds off the pheromones. Is that how it works? You know, I, I think so. I'm not sure to, to what level. I mean, I, I doubt, you know, a, a lamprey swimming under the Golden Gate can can perceive the pheromones from a, an amacete or a, a, a juvenile in Big Chico Creek. But they could find um, their so, trib, though, like a like a trout could, right? And then and then once they're up in that trib, then the pheromone piece becomes more of a vector. Yeah, I think even, even the tributary, even the tributary itself, you know, it, it could deter, it, the pheromone could determine whether or not a a lamprey makes the makes the right turn up Big Chico Creek as it comes up the Sacramento. That's crazy! How neat, huh? Sorry, I kind of got on a tangent there, but that was what a trip. That's some pretty good smell. Yeah, no, that's very pretty, cool. That's pretty cool what these fish do. Yeah, and lamprey or fish, right? Kind of. <laughs> I don't want to touch them, though, man. They're, they're early, early derived fish. Yeah, jawless fishes. But hey, something. Um, I'm sure we can we could briefly mention this. Um, lampreys might be interesting for for those that are pursuing stripers in the spring um, in the Central Valley. Um, Tyler, do you want to briefly tell them about lampreys and in, in predatory fish stomachs? Yeah, I was just going to say that um, this is, I was going to ask, this springtime is when the adults are coming in to, to spawn, isn't it? Oh, as, in terms of spawning, um, I, I'm not certain about that, but um, what Michael was mentioning, though, was that um, our screw traps, so so some of the stuff that we were doing on, our, on the other rivers that we monitor, 
Um, so this would be like the Stanislaus. Um, you know, we start picking up a lot of amacetes, uh, these ju- really juvenile um, lamprey in our in the rotary screw traps, which were also used to met, to count um, juvenile salmon. Um, but then we we were involved in uh, we're still involved in I guess I should say uh, a diet study of of among other species um, striped bass and so the folks that have been uh, pulling the diets the gut contents from these striped bass um, have they've been founding a lot of amacetes or these juvenile um, juvenile lamprey in there. So these are acting as a pretty, like this time of year acting as a pretty solid food source for these striped bass. So two questions, how long and what color? <laughs> dark, oh man, it can't be more brown, than four dark, inches. Brown and six, six, four to six inches. Yeah. Dark brown and four to six. Okay. Interesting. Cool. Yeah, black worms have been black plastic worms have been a common uh, tactic used by conventional anglers for striper in our system for a long time. I'm excited to get out and try some of that. I'm hoping hoping we can get out and do some striper fishing before long. I'm going to put a Texas rigged Senko on a fly rod. Well, Chad, maybe you need to get a bigger boat. If you can get a thirty foot, if you get a thirty footer, we can fit a whole bunch of people with a six foot distance in between. <laughs> I do not. I'm not getting another boat. Uh, I might. I, get, I might be getting a kayak. Actually, I've been looking at kayaks lately. Um, but that's a not, subject back, for another episode. Going back to uh, Big Chico Creek, I, I thought it was interesting. One of the things that I noticed because I, you know, I've. I've had a, spent most of my life catching the trout up there and doing it in a number of ways, whether it's nymphing or uh, conventionally or for dry fly. Dry flies and streamers were always my favorite tactic. You know, you don't catch as many fish, but it's just a fun way to, to get them. But the one thing I noticed when I was snorkeling those holes is I w- there would be some really big long runs and tailouts that were big enough and had enough you know, structure in it to provide, you know, a habitat for these fish. But I didn't see very many trout in the, the back end of these pools, if, if any, um, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, where I did start to see the populations increase and r- really stack up. And again, this was in the later end of summer, low water conditions. Um, the fish started to show up as soon as I got I would look up and I would see, I would start to see the um, elephant ear. What's the, what's the actual plant called, Michael or Tyler? That oh, I'm oh that's about. a good question. I've heard it referred to as the Indian rhubarb or elephant ear. Yeah, that, that plant, um, when, as soon as it would, when I become, even with that plant on the bank, I'd start to see fish. So as an angler, I was like, it was a memory for me. I'm like, oh, okay. So the current basically, the, the ripple comes in, it creates turbid water, oxygenated water, has you know, a bunch of movement in there, and then it, as it's tailing out or the current's dying off into the, the tail out, that's basically the end point where I would, st- I would, I would start to see the fish because mm. I was swimming up from the back end of the hole, right? Mm-hmm. And I, when I started to see those fish, I, I just kind of like, okay, what, is, what's, what's, what am I seeing? What's the, uh, uh, you know, what can I compare this to? And every time I poke my head up, I'd see an elephant ear plant, you know? So I thought that was pretty interesting. You know, as an angler, I'm like, Oh, cool. Well, that's instead of like wasting my time in some of this slow moving water where there was no fish, I can kind of, you know, focus my efforts on, on some of the places, the places where the fish were actually were at, you know? 
Um, That's a great observation. Yeah. I thought it was pretty cool. I don't know if that runs the same. If that's the same case around other streams out there, but um, it, and I know around the world it's different. Like in New Zealand, we've talked about this. The the bigger trout are up higher in the headwaters. Where here in California, it's the complete opposite. You know, um, and some of the bigger fish that I've seen have been in tailouts of of streams. So I just, I guess, and you guys probably know better, but the, because the because their creek was so low and, and there, it was a little bit warmer, those fish were stacked up at the head of the pools at that time. So maybe yeah, so that that makes makes sense. But yeah, that observation. Um, umbrella plant, I think, is the official term. The mm. um, Darmera is the the genus. Um, I don't know why I couldn't think of that earlier. Um, but yeah, it, it, that provides a number of, a number of benefits for the fish. Like for one, it's always sh- it's shade and cover, right? And then mm-hmm. there's if you if you ever shake one of those, and if you shake a bushel, there's all sorts of stuff that falls off into the water. There's all sorts of bugs and spiders, and you know it's it's a it's a food source for sure, or at least the yeah the sort not the plant itself, but what lives on it. Um, and yeah, back to that observation that you typically, at least on Big Chico Creek, see those fish um, near the head of the pool during the summer. I think it has to do with with the Again, it's a, a number of reasons. Um, more generally speaking, um, just based on my experience, like any given pool, like ninety percent of the water is empty water, right? And so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if you think of the current moving through a pool, it's initially concentrated at the top, right at the head of the pool, where the current comes in. So there, you can sit in low velocity water, not spend a whole lot of energy, but have the current going by and picking off food that tends to be where it's most oxygenated, which is particularly relevant um, during the summer months um, when, when the water is fairly warm. Um, and then those are also the best, yeah, like the, the best feeding position. So you typically have the, the dominant fish and the larger fish um, in, in those positions, but it can, it varies, you know, with, with the season. Um, if they're spawning, they'll be in the tail out. If, you know, during, during, spring or during any hatches they're probably spread throughout the pool but then again if the hatches peter out um they'll they'll concentrate again um near the head of the pool so but yeah it's a totally accurate observation that's a good point you bring up too is that uh the, the trout fisheries a lot of the the trout spawning takes place at the end of end of february or in that february march windows all these streams are a little bit different but if you get if you ever do see a You'll notice it a red in the tail out, you know, and you'll even sometimes see trout spawning. Um, definitely a time to leave those fish alone and, and not not harass them, right? I mean, in some places, usually that stream's closed uh, in California, but there are some situations where the stream is left open and uh, in those time periods. So it's just a good uh, character judgment just to not fish target those those fish. One thing I I did notice too. When you you mentioned the the fish being able to feed in these holes and and how they react in the different uh, different parts of the holes, I saw I saw fish some looking up like their body was kicked up at like a forty five degree angle and they were almost like looking um, to the surface as they were going to eat something and some of the fish had the opposite um, as they were kicked they were kicked down their heads were actually looking down 
and swimming along the bottoms, feeding off stuff off the bottom. I thought that was kind of interesting um, to, to see. Yeah, no, yeah. and uh, those trout, they're also very uh, kind of territorial. So, you know, you'll get one big one um, hanging out in the prime position um, where and all the other smaller ones kind of have to fight and buy for for optimal um, feeding locations. But yeah, the big, the big trout will find that optimal spot that Michael was talking about that has just the right amount of slack water, but also, um, enough flow coming in so that food is basically brought to you. All the things you can learn from sticking your head in the water every once in a while. Put the rod down and pick up a pick up a mask and snorkel. It'll benefit everybody. <laughs> I'm amazed every time. That's why I love yeah. doing it. Yeah, I think um, again, I if we talk about I talk about John's podcast a lot, but I think one of the thing reasons he his podcast is doing so well and he's such a good angler is that he spends an inordinate amount of time under the water. You know, which a lot of people don't do. And um, his insights that he's got been able to, to draw from that have, has been pretty pretty incredible stuff that he's been putting out. Yeah, and I, and I think I think this is something that we can legally recommend. Um, I don't think the average person. So so when we do these surveys, we need a permit to do them, right? But if yeah. you just go swimming or you know do it for non scientific reasons, um, uh, you don't. Um, so yeah, I would, I would encourage all, all fly anglers this, this summer as temperatures warm up to, you know, every once in a while, take a mask and a snorkel to their favorite river and spend, spend part of their time, um, looking underwater and just watching, um, you'd be yeah surprised at what you learn. So, cool. well, anything else we're coming up on the, the, the 55 minute mark. And our uh, um, WhatsApp shuts off at, at 60 minute mark, just as a heads up. Yeah. So I just want to make a plug um, for the latest video um, fish bio film that we have out on um, that has some of the um, survey results, the snorkel survey results from our oh, last awesome. um, trip on Big Tico. And so you can find that on YouTube called Counting Trout, a survey of rainbow trout in Big Chico Creek. Um, and while you're there, be sure to, be sure to like us, like and our films, subscribe, subscribe to them and subscribe. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'll make sure to Tyler, if you want to email me the links to everything, I'll make sure to put those in the show notes for you. Sure. Yeah. Cool. Um, I've got one. And don't forget to check, check regulations too on your, on the streams you're going to go to big Chico Creek is a, um, uh, has special regulations so it's not open during regular trout season just always make sure you um if you guys are planning on fishing any stream make sure you check out the regs just go for it i've got i've got a i've got a bass question for you guys Uh, i'm not sure if i'll be the right person i'll try okay so it like a lot of the you know any of the we have five minutes so um these these professional anglers like at, at you know tournaments and things they're especially this time of year they're targeting fish. They're targeting bass on their beds, right? Um, you hook up on a bed, bedded bass, and you say you put it in your live well. You take it to get weighed in, and then you like, you know, that could be like three miles away from where it was caught. Do are bass fairly like transient in terms of where they bed? 
um you know like even if i if i fish on a bedded bass and catch it and do and let it let it go and it's like you know 20 30 yards from where i caught it um what do you know if they just like go back and you know forget that they were caught and go back to what they were up to or do they just go find another bed how does that all work do you know um well they definitely look for the very specific they look for specific conditions right like the water depth has to be right the temperature well temperature is variable but the the depth and the substrate have to be right and that's why it's you know often very i don't want to say it's easy but um it's often highly likely that if you if you're looking for them you can find bass sitting on their beds because it's almost like a red um it's it's very fairly easy to spot yeah and they're they're very focused on on defending that um, that bed, which is why fishing is so successful if you if you choose to do it. Um, and I back in in my college days, I very vividly remember an, an afternoon that was over on at Ruth Lake. I don't know if you've ever fished that, but it was in spring, and we you know my buddy was a big big time bass fisherman. He's like, oh, there's a bass on a bed. He cast at it and caught it. Know, and whatever threw it back in the water 10 yards away that fish right went right back to it he cast it again caught it again he caught it three times on three casts the same fish Holy shit. um i'm not I'm, i certainly i don't know i wouldn't advocate for that type of fishing um i can tell from that experience that you know the fish was probably wasn't traumatized or 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 strongly disturbed by the experience by the experience because yeah it went right back to to where it was and it did the same thing over again and after maybe he could have caught it more could have caught it more more often still um yeah. after three after catching it three times he stopped um so i think i think they're fairly resilient to it but then again it's i mean my personal choice is not to target reproducing fish whether that's a, a steelhead or a trout on a red or a, a bass on a bed yeah right. I, I choose not to well, we got to. Um, I want to talk to you guys at some point about the uh, the relocation stuff you're doing with the striper. What, what's going on down there? And is it the stand you guys are doing that on? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Is that that's something we can we can get into in a future episode? That'd be cool. Oh, definitely. There's all yeah. There's all sorts of, of interesting interesting stuff coming out of okay. that. Cool. Out of that study. So. Yeah, yeah, we'd be glad to, yeah. Let's glad just to get it on the. It. Let's just get it on the books then, like sooner rather than later, and maybe knock it out next week. Striper um, or bad, feed them all to the pigs. I'm <laughs> <kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> that was so funny. Um, all right, well, cool. Uh, let, are you going to wrap... get so much hate mail? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> let, let's wrap it up because WhatsApp's going to kill, stop us in about forty-five seconds. So. Thank you guys. For, thanks everybody for coming on the show. Uh, thanks for listening. You guys uh, be safe out there. Wash your hands, all that stuff. Um, hopefully this, this shit stops pretty soon and we can get back to our regularly scheduled stuff where we actually have people inside the building and the audio qualities where you guys need it to be. But if you like this episode, please leave us a review. Every review helps. Um, what else, Nick? We got 20 seconds. Uh, not much. Check out our website. We have some hats, uh, there for sale still, uh, some awesome caps for the, the women too. Um, uh, been getting a lot of good feedback on, on some of those hats from but some of my friends. So that's it. It's going to hang up. Not only it's gonna they hang look up. good, but they're fishy. It's going to hang up. <laughs> <laughs> All okay. right. Okay. See you guys.
Special thanks to our sponsors. Without them, this show would not be possible. Like this episode? Leave a review, grab some gear, or become a Patreon supporter. Links are in this episode's description. This show is part of the Barbless Podcast Network. For sponsorship inquiries or general questions, please email fishon at barbless.co. No better, fish better. This has been an AMP Audio Production.